You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. Hello, you brave and faithful few. So glad that you guys uh, are with us this morning. I'd like to just start by directing your attention to Psalm 139. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and, and open it to a, a much beloved um, text in our scripture, Psalm 139. While you're finding that, I want to just make you aware that uh, Candace Aiken's mom passed away this last week, so I encourage you to be praying for her. Uh, Vicki Ford's dad, Mr. Woody, passed away overnight, so I'd ask you to be uh, praying for, for Mike and Vicki. I got to um, speak to them this morning and pray uh, with them, so keep them in your prayers. And I, I would remind all of us um, that we have uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and just fellow human beings who have experienced uh, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria, uh, a magnitude earthquake that we've not seen anything like, uh, and with death tolls and displacement tolls that we've never seen. Uh, in the United States. So far, uh, 46,450 and counting are dead. Um, over 115,000 are wounded and nearly two and a half million have been displaced. So um, we have, as I said, Christian brothers and sisters ministering there uh, who are experiencing family loss there, um, communities trying to be faithful um, to Christ there. So please continue um, and if you haven't prayed, just start praying uh, for the people in Turkey and Syria as they um, try to get through the days ahead. Listening to a message earlier this week uh, that Alistair Begg had preached earlier in the year uh, where he dealt with a few of the verses uh, that we're going to cover this morning, he uh, shared a little bit about his inadequate uh, knowledge of art, which I also share. I did have an art class to fulfill a humanities requirement in undergrad, introduction to visual art. It was like three hours, uh, one evening a week, and it was horrendous. Um, but I did get to know some artists, some painters, and some characteristics of theirs. But uh, Gauguin, uh, being one of those that we studied, um, uh, artists at that level are kind of a sad and tragic lot um, once you study them. But Gauguin, like many of them, um, did not experience any appreciation for his art in his lifetime, and it was only after um, he died that uh, his art became uh, famous and valuable. But the largest Gauguin painting is in Boston. It's in Boston. And what makes uh, this particular painting is so interesting is not just that it's the largest and that it is sort of a, a panorama of human life starting, uh, starting uh, with infancy on one end and moving uh, through the seasons and stages of life to the, to the elderly at the other end. But it's also interesting because it's the only painting that Gauguin ever wrote on, that he ever wrote on the actual canvas. And uh, in the upper left-hand corner, he wrote three questions. He wrote, where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? Where do we come from? What are we? And where are we going? 
These are questions that thoughtful human beings have been asking uh, as long as human beings have been asking questions. And sadly, Gauguin never found the answers to these, even though he was uh, raised in a Roman Catholic home and Roman Catholic tradition. He knew the catechisms. He knew the right answers to the right questions, but they had never moved from his head into his heart where they grabbed a hold of and changed his life. But I think when you look at the, the, the mass cultural chaos and confusion that we're going through as a society, and I will tell you, a bit of confusion that has seeped in to the church, underneath it, way underneath, all of these issues of human sexuality and, and what constitutes marriage and doesn't constitute marriage and gender and gender identity are questions exactly like Gauguin was asking. Where do we come from? What are we essentially? And where are we going? Where are we going? I want us, uh, in light of these questions, to turn as I said before, to Psalm 139. And I want to let the Word of God, the good and beautiful and right and true and trustworthy Word of God to His creation lay a foundation for us this morning as we seek to, to build on what we looked at last week with regard to gender identity in the gospel and what we believe about gender as Christians as the church this morning to then, how is it that we respond to a culture of gender confusion? How is it we respond to uh, individuals in our own families, our own homes, friends on our streets, coworkers, classmates? Before we can get there though, we have to start here. Let's look at Psalm 139. I'm going to read straight through verses 1 through 17. Pray for us briefly that God might open this text to us. And then we'll look at it for a few minutes. Verse 1, Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, your word is powerful. God, your word is true. Your word is accurate and right and good. God, your word leads us, leads us to life. Father, I pray this morning that you would open your word to us. God, that in ways uh, that maybe we haven't done in a long time or haven't ever done, we would find ourselves believing what you teach us in your word. God, and that our moral compass, our ethical inclinations, our understanding of compassion and love and truth would be formed by your word, God, not by our feelings. May you be lifted up in this place and honored this morning. I prayed in Jesus' faithful name. Amen. All right, when you look at the first six verses of Psalm 139, you see the, the psalmist paint a picture of the truth that um, before God, you are fully known. You are fully known. That you can, you can hide things from the person you're sitting beside. You can hide things from friends. You can hide things from coworkers. You can even, in our human confusion, hide some truths from our own selves. But in God, we are fully known. And in Christ, fully loved and fully accepted. This passage has been great comfort to followers of Christ and produced great consternation to those who are not. David says, you've searched me and you know me. You know me. You're actively involved in who I am. You know when I sit and when I rise. You know what's happening with me physically. You know my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. This morning, God is saying to you, you are fully known by him. Every fear, every hope, every darkness, every haunting or besetting sin or tendency, everything that you are, you're fully known. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You encircle me and lay your hand upon me. And then as if overflowing, as he thinks about this, David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. He says, I can't seem to, to get my hands and my mind and my heart around it and hold on to it. To be known like this 
by God at such an intimate level. But he goes on to make the case that we're not just fully known, but we are always before God in our being. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up in the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, which was the most terrifying place that ancient peoples could think of, was wherever the far side of the sea took you. It was the place in their mind of no return. It was the place of utter chaos and destruction. Even there, your hand will guide me. Your hand will hold me fast. Take note of this. He doesn't say my faith will hold me fast. He doesn't say my daily devotion to you will hold me fast. He says your hand will hold me fast regardless of the circumstances of my life. And that has been the witness of men and women of God throughout the history of the church. That through ups and downs, through war and famine, through physical failing and moral failing, through degradation and death and persecution, the hand of the God who fully knows us and before whom we are always present holds us fast. I don't know where you are this morning, but some of you need to hear God saying, I've got this. I will hold you fast. I know what's happening in your body. I know what's happening at work. I know what's happening in your family. And I will hold you fast. I was thinking about this this week as one of my kids laughed at me trying to get up off the floor. I blame the knee surgery and a slight bit of increased weight. Um, but I was getting up and I was thinking, keep laughing because, and let me just say to you younger ones in here, should God grant you any amount of tenure in life, your body will begin to fail you. It is a matter of time. And I only hope with my kids who I love so much that I live long enough to see that. <laughs> right? This is part of the effects of the fall in human creation. Nothing works quite as it's supposed to. Everything deteriorates. Everything goes south. The psalmist continues and David reminds us that we are created with great and personal intentionality and love and goodness. Know that this morning, that you as an individual, your very physical makeup, emotional makeup, mental makeup, your strengths and your weaknesses, your tendencies, you were created intentionally by God with love and goodness. Now, obviously, the image of God has been marred in you because of sin. But that doesn't lessen the truth that David gives us here. Verse 13, he says, the reason I'm always before you, 
The reason, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, whoever I'm with, whatever's happening, I'm always before your presence is because you, verse 13, for you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. This is a picture of being being intimately put together according to God's purpose for you. Right? No such thing as an accidental pregnancy. Before God, friends, can I even say this? There's no such thing as an accidental or premature death. There is to us. But there's no such thing as an untimely death to God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. God was at work even at that stage of human existence. I praise you. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. How many of you think of yourselves that way that aren't men, right? I mean, men for no reason whatsoever will wake up and look in the mirror and go, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Men who've not read this. But you are. You are exactly as you are, fearfully and wonderfully made. Why? Because God's works are wonderful. David says, I know that full well. He says, I know God, you don't make mistakes. And David was a sinner. In fact, he was good at it at times. He like, he had enrolled in the premier level of sin. He was a broken human being. And yet his heart belonged to God. And he never, never bowed before another God. That's what makes David the ultimate king in the Old Testament. It's not his moral superiority or perfection. It's the fact that his heart belonged to God. And even in his brokenness and even in his sin and even in all of the treacherous consequences of that, he would not give his devotion to another. My frame was not hidden from you, he says in verse 15, when I was made in the secret place when I was woven together in the depths of the earth, the secret place in the depths of the earth, or simply um, uh, he break metaphors for the womb. Verse 16, your eyes, your eyes saw my, my unformed body. And then a verse that I, I think we struggle to believe with or just don't believe at all. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. I have nothing to worry about. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. What what we see here is that meditating on the word of God and the truth of God about who he is and how he relates to his creation leads inevitably when taken seriously to joy and happiness in our life. It leads to trust in God. It leads to an overwhelming sense of his goodness. Throughout this, David is overflowing with wonder at who God is and saying, God is not confused. God is involved from the very beginning and before of the creation of individual human beings. And he is intimately at work No mistakes, 
No mistakes. When you take Psalm 139, just these 17 verses, and when you set them alongside Genesis 1 and 2 specifically, and the consistent witness of both the Old Testament and the New, you have to say, when it comes to gender identity, that a man cannot become a woman, and a woman cannot become a man. A male cannot be nor become a female, and a female cannot be nor become a male. Church, it is not only a biological impossibility, it is a theological absurdity. It simply cannot be. Truth is not determined by what I feel about me or what I feel about anything. And with all due respect, and I mean that, to celebrity characters and, and, and persons like Chaz Bono or Bono and Caitlyn Jenner, Chaz transitioned from chastity to Chaz, from a female to a male. In 2009 and 2010, Caitlin, who many of you who are older will know as, as one of our historically beloved Olympians, formerly Bruce, transitioned from male to female in 2015. But every chromosome in Chaz's body is XX. It's female. Every chromosome in Caitlin Jenner's body is XY, it's male. If Chaz and Caitlin, with respect and seriousness, were to have to be dug up and analyzed in 50 or 100 years, scientists would conclude without any confusion who was male and who was female. Without any confusion. Gender matters. Gender matters. And regardless of what we're hearing day in and day out, it is absolutely distinctively tied to biological sex by God's sovereign and good design. By God's sovereign and good design. And we must be clear on this in the church if we are to offer love and light and hope in a culture that's lost its way and gone absolutely mad, we have to be clear on this. So given Psalm 139, given what we saw last week from Genesis 1 and other places in Scripture, how is it that we respond to a culture so deeply confused with regard to gender and identity? Let me just give you three ways this morning. There are many ways, but let me talk to you about three. The first is this. We respond by honoring the distinctiveness of being created male and female. And when I talk about honoring that, I'm talking about in our lives and in the church specifically. That we hold up with clarity and humility what we find and believe to be true 
in Scripture. Let me give you a, a little example of this from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, um, if you're turning there, I will tell you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is one of the most head-scratching, bizarre, ambiguous, scholar-stumping chapters in all of Scripture. New Testament scholars will regularly say, we're absolutely sure Paul was addressing something specifically in Corinth. Exactly what all he was addressing, we're not sure, and exactly what all he was attending, intending in 1 Corinthians 11, we're not sure. But that doesn't mean that we're not sure of anything. And it does not mean that we are not sure of any universal truths and principles that Paul is laying out for the church in 1 Corinthians 11. Let me read verses 4 and 5 and then 13 through 15. Paul is addressing the church in Corinth with regard to public worship, what we're doing right now, with regard to, to what is to happen, what is not to happen, and how things are to happen when the congregation is gathered in worship. Verses 4 and 5, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. It is the same as having her head, her head shaved. I think I misread four. Let me read four again. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Now, we, we know some things um, about what women with head shaved meant in first century Corinth and other things like that, but it seems a bit bizarre. Now you go over to verses 13 through 15. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. Now, I'm not going to exegete this and pick it all apart this morning because that's not what we're doing with it. But I do want to say this. Paul is saying something about gender identity and conforming to the, the gender that God has assigned us and given us when it comes to how we operate in church and in worship. Uh, N.T. Wright and J.D. Greer, I think, will be helpful to you on this as they comment on this passage. N.T. Wright, in a lecture entitled Men, Women, and the Church, given some years back at St. John's College in Durham in the UK, said this, the underlying point then of the passage I just read seems to be that in worship, it is important for both men and women to be their truly created selves, to honor God by being what they are and not blurring the lines by pretending to be something else. One of the unspoken clues to this passage may be Paul's assumption that in worship, the creation is being restored, or perhaps that in worship, we are anticipating its eventual restoration. God made humans male and female and gave them authority over the world. Summarizing Genesis 1, 26 through 28 and echoing Psalm 8, 4 through 8. And if humans are to reclaim this authority over the world, this will come about as they worship the true God, as they pray and prophesy in his name and are renewed in his image in being what they were made to be in celebrating the genders God has given them. 
J.D. Greer in a podcast episode answered some questions around this this way. Long hair and head coverings communicated femininity. He was talking about what communicated being male and female in first century Corinth. In 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, 14, Paul says, nature itself teaches you that men and women are created differently and thus they should look different and not try to look like each other. The point is not long hair or short hair. What he's saying is there's a specific cultural application and then a general universal principle that we take from that. The point is not long or short hair. The point is every culture has certain things that distinguish men from women and women from men. And we should not try to blur those. We should not support this androgynous kind of view that there's really no distinguishable sexes or just one blended sex. And so if you take that into our world today, what Paul would be saying is that in the church and among Christians, men need to generally present themselves as men in the culture that they're in. To do anything less is to dishonor the name and the authority of God and the image of God given to them. Women, same for women. And we know this changes culture to culture and even drifts a little bit in culture over time. Right? I'm in a culture where for me to paint my face and come out here in a skirt would not display maleness. But if I were in Scotland, or at least if I was Braveheart, that might be different. It is different based on different cultures. But all cultures have identifiers for maleness and femaleness, for what it, what it means in society to act, interact with one another as men and as women. And what Paul is saying here is we need to honor that. That is given to us by the Creator God, and we as restored human beings who are having, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the image of God restored in us, need to accurately reflect the gender that God has given us. And we know this changes. Uh, we know that decades ago, men in America did not wear earrings. You didn't put a little stud in your ear. Family I grew up in, you still did not do such things. But that's fairly common in our culture now. 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago, women didn't do tattoos. It's very hard to find a woman in my generation and younger who don't have tattoos. We're going to have some of the most interesting grandmothers that the Western world has ever known. Little grandkids tracing granny stuff. What is that? You're like, I don't remember. I can tell you what it, what it was in the beginning. All right. Once gravity took hold, I don't know exactly what it is now, right? It is a sagging version of a llama or whatever. I got to move on. I'm going to get into trouble. But all that to say, cultures shift within a culture and culture by culture is different. Yet all cultures have accepted norms. All cultures have accepted norms for what it means to be male and female and what it looks like to be male and female together in society and Paul is saying in the church, not because of what the culture says, but in line with what they would understand for a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman, we are to live within that and display it within the church because we are displaying to them the image and the goodness of the creation of God. So one way that we respond is that we honor the distinctiveness of being created male and female. And this is not about tendencies or characteristics, right? 
Because if we say these characteristics are, are male and these characteristics are female, well, then if a female is doing these, let's say uh, we say, well, well, men are providers and protectors. Well, sometimes men are called on to provide and protect, right? But sometimes a 28-year-old man is still living at home. He's not married, he's not providing for anything, and he's not protecting anyone. So do we say he, he is, is not a man? Sometimes a woman, maybe she's a single mom. She is the full provider and full protector of her family. Do we now describe her as a man? <laughs> right? I mean, we share human traits and tendencies and characteristics and personalities that manifest themselves in different ways across a spectrum in our lives. And yet, Scripture says clearly we're created. All human beings are male or female. We talked about the intersex thing last week. So if you weren't here and you're going, but what about intersex? What about intersex? Um, go back and listen uh, to last week. Second way we respond, and this is always, and especially when we're talking about the personal level here, we respond with both compassion and conviction. Usually, not always, usually given our temperament and background, we tend to incline ourselves in one direction or the other and then excuse the one that we don't do. We're either more inclined to lean toward compassion, which can easily become an unbiblical kind of acceptance that actually encourages destructive behaviors and thinking in a person, or we incline ourselves toward conviction so much so that anytime we're around people sharing our conviction with them, we're harming them with our very demeanor and attitude toward them. But I think if we are to follow the model of Jesus in Scripture and in His ministry, we're going to have to learn to respond with both compassion and conviction. Now, let me work this out a little bit for you. Uh, one of the questions that people are asking now, uh, and when I say people, I'm, I'm talking about followers of Jesus, as all of this is bubbling throughout society, is what do we do with preferred pronouns. Like, what, what do I do when I meet someone that's, that's clearly John, but sees themselves as Jenny and wants me to call him her? And these are legitimate questions for people who claim to be people of truth, who love God and love others. My answer will probably not be overly satisfying to you. Uh, I, I do think it, I think it depends. I think it depends on the situation. I also think Christians can have sincere and different opinions based on good conscience. In other words, good biblical conviction as we're working and thinking this out. We, we've got to give a measure of grace here. There are certainly some, some clarities. And I hope I'm laying those out as I preach um, in unambiguous ways. But in terms of how we're responding and working this out, we need to give one another some space because this is some messy stuff. And we're figuring it out live time under the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And we may be changing a bit as we learn more. But I do think Christians can have different opinions based on good conscience on this. And I do think that different scenarios require different responses. A couple of examples I heard Rebecca McLaughlin give when asked this question is uh, this. Uh, she said, my local bar barista is a trans person and identifies as the opposite gender from the one God gave them. Um, I, Sharon and I have um, 
use a particular pharmacy, local pharmacy here, that has had a transitioning individual there. And at times, I'll be, I'll be very honest with you, I would go in, and I wasn't sure if it was, um, if he was a, a man trying to go toward a woman, or he was a woman trying to become a man, because it was in that centrality of transitioning, and I wasn't sure. But, you, it, but it's very obvious that they're taking hormone drugs and other kinds of things. And I think in those situations where there's no, um, no natural moral authority over that person and marginal social contact and no spiritual obligation to in the way that, uh, that Scripture uh, spiritually obligates us to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, I-, I think you handle that differently. I think that's one end of a spectrum. Way down on the other end of the spectrum is, is one, of, one of your kids. If one of my kids says, hey, Dad, I want you now to refer to me as the opposite gender, and I'm changing my name. I'm going to handle that differently than the occasional person I run into in the community where I might just say, hey, what's your name? And he or she shares their name. And I just say, nice to meet you, I'm Matt. That may be the extent of it and just demonstrating love and respect when I go to, when I go to pick up things versus something happening in my own house. In the middle there, I would say, is a, is a, a close Christian friend which would obviously be far more similar to a family member where you're wanting to lean in and to remind them of truth and to speak truth to them with both compassion and conviction. And I think when you, when you get to this, how do we respond to individuals and what do we do here and what do we do there and what do we teach our kids? Can I just say, teaching your kids, especially your littles, is far easier than you really think it is. I know quite often ours were at that age in California And we would simply say things like this to them on a regular basis. Yes, we know that that those two boys are together in a way that usually a boy and a girl is, and we don't believe that that's God's best. We don't believe that that's the way God designed human beings to interact, right? And we want to love them, and we want to pray for them, and we hope one day that they love Jesus like we do, and, and Jesus is their Lord. And that's enough for kids. Now they may go tell them that, but that's fine. You know, Susie and Susie move next door with their child. You know, why does Bobby have two mommies? Well, same kind of thing. Here's what we believe. Here's why. We want to love Susie and Susie. I guess it's probably not the case they'd have the same name, but, um, but we don't believe that that's how God designed the world to work. And we hope one day that they come to love Jesus and know Jesus And kids are satisfied with that. And that's true, you understand? Now they may run across the yard and say, God didn't design you guys to be like this. There's nothing you can do with that, right? I'm just saying it's it's simpler at times than, than we think. The key question always, I think, is what is our motivation? And this is where it's gonna get real for us, church, in a way that it hasn't been real in our country um, ever. You know, it, when asking our motivation, are we wanting to use maybe someone's preferred pronouns out of a sincere love for them? Maybe we're, we're trying not to disrespect them in a one-on-one kind of situation or out of fear of how we'll be perceived or the potential consequences if we don't. Those motivations make a big difference and you need to ask God to help you discern your own heart. You'll hear from people now, hey, I could lose my job right now for living out Christian ethics at work, 
for not being willing to celebrate what they're telling me to celebrate, for not being willing to use certain pronouns or certain things. And can I just say, frankly, we should all be willing to lose our jobs. This is coming for us now. We have to be willing to lose our jobs. And I want to go further, and I'll say more about this next week when we deal with the, uh, uh, the unique situation with regard to marriage um, and what defines a marriage and what is and isn't one, but we should also be willing to lose friendships and even at times be willing to lose family members. Not that we're driving them away, but if we are unwilling to agree with what we know to not only be untrue, but contrary to their good, and they pull back, we have to be good with this. Let me remind you of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 14 and several ways in other places. And I'll be brief here because we'll cover it more next week. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. This is why hermeneutics or principles of interpretation matter. Because Jesus is not saying exactly what he appears to be saying on the face value. Jesus never calls us to hate. What Jesus is saying using hyperbolic language is, in order to be my disciple, your allegiance to me must be before your allegiance to anyone or anything else, period. You have to be willing to lose a spouse over me. You have to be willing to lose a mother, a father. You have to be willing to lose your children over your commitment to me. Friends, believers in Christ around the world and throughout history have known this to be true. We have lived in a confused, untrue bubble for so long that just now we're having to realize, oh, there really is a high cost to discipleship. Jesus potentially meant what he said. We have to be willing to lose our jobs over this. Let me read you one verse from Proverbs 14, 12 that illustrates why our responses to people require both compassion and conviction. Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end, it leads to death. Don't miss this. There's a way that seems to be right. It seems to be right to a person. It appears to be right. That's where compassion comes in. It's not that, that individuals we know and love are trying to confuse themselves. What they're moving toward and what they're advocating for seems to be right to them. It appears to be right. But God is warning us now with pleading wisdom that we cannot discern and judge in our broken, finite, sinful human state all that is good and right and just, and we must rely on Him. There's a way that appears to be right, but, but in the end leads to death. And it's not that any of this individual behavior or decisions lead to death. It's that they are flowing from the conscience and heart and a mind of someone who's saying, I discount you, God. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you have laid down in your word. I 
will make my own decisions. I will be the supreme authority in my life and my allegiance ultimately is to my own feelings and thinking. And friends, that kind of disregard for God and rejection of Christ most certainly will lead both to physical and eternal death. The Hebrew parallelism here is so strong. Appears correlates to leads and right to death. Appears to be right, but leads to death. Appears to be right, but leads to death. You know, a lot of the experiences that are being lumped together right now as transgender, and it, it used to be for a long time that the, the vast majority of people of the, of the small, small minority who really struggled with gender dysphoria and gender confusion uh, were boys, were young men who given time, the majority grew out of. But what we've seen over the last five to eight years is this vast explosion of girls experiencing this. And most of them experiencing what experts are calling rapid on-site gender dysphoria, which means they never seem to struggle at all, but now they're teenagers in an environment that says it's cool to be trans. It's cool to be gender non-binary, which means I don't know if I this way or this way, I'm sort of nothing and everything. Or gender fluid, which means I go guy, girl, guy, girl. In a culture that's pushed this, that has uh, cheered for this, that's promoted it, that's put stars up saying it, that's had social media affirming it, now you have this just explosion of girls who are dabbling in it and saying, oh, now I'm confused. Well, you haven't been for years and years, but now I am. And I, I think we have to be careful not to confuse that sort of um, social contagion, if you will, with those who experience genuine consistent, painful confusion about gender who feel uh, not at home in their own bodies and who have never felt at home. One woman described it this way. She said, gender dysphoria feels like being unable to get warm no matter how many layers you put on. It feels like hunger without appetite. It feels like grieving it feels like having nothing to grieve. Church, we should respond to people experiencing this with compassion and empathy. With a posture of love and a listening ear and an empathetic heart. And, and, if, and if you need help with this, we, we're just starting a bookstore that will kind of grow month by month and take shape, but there are a lot of great resources out there available for sale to you. We're not making money off of them, right? They're what you would get them off of Amazon. They're just here. And so you can look at them. Um, but check out the resources out there. I would also um, just remind us of this, Abigail Shearer in her book, Irreversible Damage. The transgender craze seducing our daughter says that multiple studies indicate, and she documents the studies in there, that nearly 70% of kids who experience gender dysphoria and are not affirmed or socially transitioned eventually grow out of it in young adulthood. And there are studies that show that being closer to 80%. It doesn't mean all. There are, there are some who do experience profound, deeply distressing gender confusion that over time renders them suicidal. But let me say this, and I want everyone in here to look at me and to listen to this. For those individuals 
much less for the ones who are sort of swept up in the, the social coolness of it right now. What they need, what they need is not gender affirmation, but Christ-centered friendship. Gender affirmation will not help them. It will lead them to death. And we're already seeing that in some who were socially transitioned and then physically transitioned early and whose lives will never be the same. What they need is Christ-centered friendship, is men and women who will demonstrate both compassion and conviction. And I'm not even saying that's going to be enough. I'm not going to stand up here and blow smoke. Uh, For many who are more involved sort of in the ideology, it is not enough to show compassion and conviction. What I mean is um, we ought to be able to to be people who can say, I agree with the reality of your feelings. I, I understand what you're saying. I hear you. But not agree with their conclusion. I understand that you feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, and that is real for you, and it is painful. And yet, I do not believe you are a woman trapped in a man's body. I don't think you're accidental. I don't think God took his hand off the wheel when you were created. But for many, that will not be enough now. Because at least at a cultural level, ideologically, what our nation is looking for is not simply affirmation, but celebration and promotion. But I still believe we are to give them compassion and conviction because what they need, again, is not gender affirmation. What someone who's wrestling with suicide needs is not gender affirmation, but Christ-centered friendship, someone to love them and listen to them. Last one, and this will go quickly. We have to commit to being people of love and friendship for life. Love and friendship for life. Because for some, and for some of our brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, this is going to be a lifelong struggle. And let me say this to those of you here, those of you watching online, in every church, including ours, there are going to be some who experience only same-sex attraction. There are going to be some who experience this kind of gender confusion consistently or off and on. And I want to encourage you to do something that maybe nobody's ever encouraged you to do so, uh, to, to do in church. I want to encourage you to open up about that in the church and be honest. No church has the opportunity to be compassionate and convictional and love and walk with you if you won't come out of hiding and out of the darkness. I think what you're going to find is people who know their own brokenness and their own struggles and are happy to love you and to walk in friendship with you. Greg Allison in Embodied said, creation as male image bearers and female image bearers is indispensable for us to carry out our divinely given mandate to build society. And this isn't, and this necessity isn't just for procreation, but also for vocation, which requires both men and women to work and contribute to human flourishing. We're designed and intended by God as men and women to do life together. And in so doing, to reflect the fullness of his character that leads to our flourishing and to the flourishing of human society. 
we have at our house right now an almost completed, I think, snack pack of chocolate pudding cups. You got your milk chocolate for winners. You got your dark chocolate for health enthusiasts. And no one has to come up after and explain to me that none of them are healthy. I know that. Um, But unless you want to come over and hang out with our kids for months, just be quiet. <laughs> Has 12 individual cups. And I was looking at one of the individual cups on the top yesterday, and it had this phrase on it, happiness within. Wouldn't it be nice? Wouldn't it be nice if all you needed in confusion and pain was to peel the lid off of a snack pack pudding cup and find happiness inside? We're hungering for it. We're designed by God to yearn for joy and satisfaction and happiness in a way that is supposed to lead us to him. The only bottomless well of joy that we'll ever know. In the secular creed, Rebecca McLaughlin says, rather than being a hateful tool of oppression, the Bible truly offers hope to those who feel alienated from their bodies. It's time that we once again know this and believe this church, that rather than being a hateful tool of oppression, the Bible truly offers hope to those who feel alienated from their bodies. In keeping with that, I wanna read to you again a small portion of Psalm 139 from the Living Bible. And I just wanna read this over you and I want you to listen to it. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit them together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. It is amazing to think about. Your workmanship is marvelous and how well I know it. You were there while I was being formed in utter seclusion. You saw me before I was born and scheduled each day of my life before I began to breathe. Every day was recorded in your book. How precious it is, Lord, to realize that you are thinking about me constantly. I can't even count how many times a day your thoughts turn toward me. Church, this is the message of Scripture about the God who created you and knows you and loves you and before whom you are always, always in His presence. I'm going to pray for us, and as I pray, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions, and they'll pass the buckets when I finish. You guys can drop in your Connection cards, you can drop in your giving envelopes if you you give on Sunday morning as opposed to online or by text throughout the week. If you need more time with them, keep them. You can turn them in. Um, The box is on the walls. Let's pray. God, this is a personal, for many painful, for many confusing, for many discouraging, 
issue and topic in our culture, in our homes, in our own lives. God, remind us this morning that we actually have a lens and a compass for this, for explaining all of the ways and degrees with which we're fractured as human beings resulting from the fall recorded for us in Genesis 3. God, help us to believe that in Christ, you really are making all things new. That Christ is our hope, not just for the next life, but for this life. Jesus, teach us. Jesus, help us trust you. Jesus, make us whole people. I pray this in your name. Amen. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us online at lnbc.us. Thanks for tuning in today.